Welcome to Voices of Aging, where you learn more about aging through experts. We are ASIC, the Aging Studies Interdisciplinary Group at the University of Minnesota. Every episode, we invite people working in a variety of different fields related to aging and hear their stories. Tune in. Either you're considering a career in aging, or want to learn more about aging fields, or simply want to listen to a stimulating conversation, you will find something you like. Find Voices of Aging on the iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Madeline, host of the Voices of Aging podcast. We have an exciting episode today where we will be hearing from Claire Day from the Alzheimer's Association. Claire Day has been on staff of the Alzheimer's Association since 2001. She is the chief program officer at the Northern California and Northern Nevada chapter, and as such, oversees all care and support operations and research initiatives. Ms. Day is a clinical social worker and has received her degree from Bloomsburg University of Pennsylvania. In 2018, Ms. Day was appointed the chapter lead for the U.S. study to protect brain health through lifestyle interventions to reduce risk in California at UC Davis. U.S. Pointer is a two-year clinical trial to evaluate whether lifestyle interventions that simultaneously target multiple risk factors, protect cognitive function in older adults at increased risk for cognitive decline. Ms. Day has more than 20 years of experience as a family and professional educator in dementia care. Now we will hear from Claire with an introduction to Alzheimer's disease and dementia. While we um, talk a lot about Alzheimer's uh, in, in particular, we know a lot of this great research is also um, in need of, of support around dementia as well. So today we'll talk a little bit about that, a little bit about some of the advances in clinical trials, and then it'll be a great um, uh, lead up to our next presenter. But you know, the reason we're all here is these facts are real. Um, more than 6 million Americans are living with Alzheimer's disease today. One in three seniors die of Alzheimer's or another form of dementia. And the cost of care uh, through unpaid caregivers and just the cost to our Medicare and Medicaid system across the country is astronomical. Um, we, we have to do something to change the trajectory of this disease um, because it will it's literally going to bankrupt people and systems if we can't. We've also we also know more about the gender, racial and ethnic disparities when it comes to Alzheimer's. And we're seeing a lot of trials that are focused on increasing the amount of um, diversity in those clinical trials so that we when we do have an effective treatment or cure, we want to make sure that it works for everyone. Today, more than uh, two thirds of Americans with Alzheimer's are women. Uh, older Blacks and Hispanic Americans are disproportionately affected. Um, blacks are two times as likely to develop Alzheimer's disease, uh, and Hispanics are one and a half times uh, likely to uh, develop Alzheimer's disease. 
And of course, we see this historical underrepresentation in clinical trials, which just underscores that need for more diversity in those dementia clinical trials and research. So I will do a little bit of level setting about dementia. We use the words, you hear the words dementia and Alzheimer's oftentimes interchange, but there is a difference. And so just to sort of start us off here, uh, the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia is really about what dementia is. Dementia is that syndrome. It's a collection of symptoms related to cognitive decline. They can be cognitive, behavioral, psychological, and they're they're caused by this biological change in the brain. But what's different is what that changes is in the brain, right? So we have different types of, of dementia. Alzheimer's is the most common, about 60 to 80% of all cases of dementia are Alzheimer's. But you'll see here some of the more um, prominent uh, types of dementia, like vascular dementia, Lewy body dementia, frontotemporal dementia. Um, are playing a role and we're getting better and better at distinguishing the difference between um, Alzheimer's and, and what those other related dementias might look like. So, you know, you think of it like flowers, right? Flowers would be the word dementia. And then there's all these different types, tulips, petunias, roses, uh, um, um, carnations. Uh, so thinking of it in terms of understanding that dementia is that, that sort of term that describes the symptoms rather than the disease process itself. But what we've also done over the last several years is really understood the continuum of cognitive, cognitive impairment much differently and, and with sort of this better understanding of how um, it really becomes this continuum over time. We really now see, start to see um, the, that, that um, impairment across occurs across this continuum spanning many years. We start off in the left side, right? Cognitively unimpaired, but as we age, some individuals will progress to stages of mild cognitive impairment. Mild cognitive impairment is impairment that does not interfere with our activities of daily living, but those biological changes that we talked about in the brain have already started to occur. So if an individual goes on to develop dementia, they will progress into mild, moderate, and severe stages of the disease. And this is where we start to see <clears throat> that, that definition um, really based on the, the level of impairment, <clears throat> excuse me, related to the, the two or more cognitive functions that might interfere with those activities of living, um, such as bathing, dressing, um, you know, the, all of those sort of activities of daily function. So mild cognitive impairment is a risk factor of dementia, but not all individuals who develop mild cognitive impairment will go on to develop dementia that everyone who experiences dementia will have passed through mild cognitive impairment. This is important because as we start to see research uh, um, show that we can prevent new cases of mild cognitive impairment, and you'll hear about one of those in the, in the end of the presentation, then you'll start to see how we could actually prevent new cases of dementia as well. Of course, when we talk about Alzheimer's, it is the, the largest, uh, it is the, the biggest, um, most common type of, of dementia that we, we know about. Um, so it's important to, to understand a little bit about the biology here um, of Alzheimer's disease. And uh, I don't wanna go into this too much. I uh, assume that uh, our next speaker will 
cover some of these uh, some things, but you know, I think the big takeaway from from this slide is to really be able to see um, how the brain is changing over that neurodegeneration. Um, we see that the um, these deposits of beta amyloid on on a, on a uh, under a microscope, um, and really see that. Um, how we we learn about this description of the biological changes of the brain and how we we associate it with those three specific hallmarks of the disease that buildup of amyloid protein in the form of plaques around the neurons the formation of those tau tangles inside the neurons and then brain cell death or that neurodegeneration that causes that that total atrophy of the brain tissue in areas of the brain that are most important around memory planning and behavior so today, what we know about Alzheimer's disease is what's happening in the brain. What we don't know is why. And until that time, we're learning more and more about what impacts our risk. So we can't tell you today the things that you can do to prevent Alzheimer's disease, um, but we can tell you the things that um, potentially play a, a factor in increasing your risk. Um, certainly, there are things that are non-modifiable, right? We're all getting older every day, whether we like it or not. We can't change our genes or our race or ethnicity. But research has shown us that there are modifiable risk factors, things that we can change that do play a part on decreasing our risk of developing dementia. And we'll see some of the, the outcomes of some of those things like cardiovascular health, what's good for the heart is good for the brain. 25% of our blood pump from our, from our heart pumps to our brain. So it makes sense that what's good for the heart is good for the brain. But we also have some evidence and research to back that up. We're also learning more about other environmental lifestyle factor. Uh, we're learning more about environmental lifestyle factors and other uh, factors like diet and sleep, um, how social and cognitive in engagement and education level um, all can play a role at increasing our risks of developing dementia. And then we've also seen about uh, the recent studies around traumatic brain injury and how we need to do what we can to protect our brain um, from that sort of physical damage as well. The Alzheimer's Association is uh, really engaged in ensuring that at any given moment, research is happening. Together across industries, we are one, we are the ones that are uniting this effort. And, and it's really interesting to see the scope of what's happening in Alzheimer's and dementia research in the world. Currently, um, we're um, there are $250 million worth of active um, research it happening in dementia and Alzheimer's that are being funded by the Alzheimer's Association. We're funding over 730 projects across 39 countries. Um, and what's really uh, exciting about that is that the Alzheimer's Association can play a role in research that's a little bit different um, than what we see from funding through the National Institute on Health. And, you know, we're really, we love this slide because this really shows us that trajectory that's changed over the last decade since the passing of the National Alzheimer's Project Act in 2011, which for the first time created a nationwide plan to address Alzheimer's and dementia. But the NIH funding is only going to go so far um, and, and is really going to, we're going to, we've seen this nice steady increase over the last few years of really being able to invest in a world without Alzheimer's and all other dementia. But what the Alzheimer's Association can do is also start to sort of seed speed and um, increase the amount of research that's happening towards 
other um, types of treatments and interventions that might not be funded at an NIH level. Today in the United States, uh, this is the landscape of what's happening with clinical trials. This was updated in April. Uh, we try to update these a couple of times a year. So you can see here, we've got some nice studies happening in phase one and two, about 129 in phase one, 191 in phase two, and then 62 in that phase three. This is our, that's our large scale um, phase of, of clinical trials, but there's absolutely a need for participants um, in, in, in uh, these trials to ensure that we get the participation in really helping us to solve this problem. And some of the treatments that are currently being um, tested, we've got uh, all kinds of things around the cognition, including memory and thinking, learning and, and planning, but also looking at these behavioral and psychological symptoms as well, which I think are very important. Um, we know that um, even with the, the recent FDA approval of Adjuhelm, you know, that's not curing Alzheimer's disease. Um, and so until that time, we also need to ensure that we're providing clinical um, improvements to some of these behavioral and psychological symptoms that will improve quality of life for people living with dementia. And I think what's most exciting for me is what we're learning uh, about how these multiple healthy felt factors may be most impactful. And we've certainly seen evidence of how when, when we're when we do these things together, there could be the potential for maximum benefit. So I wanna tell you about a couple of trials that uh, really kind of um, lead back to that initial conversation about what happens if we can prevent new cases of mild cognitive impairment. Well, if you've not heard of the Sprint Mind study, this, is the, this was the first study to demonstrate that there were, we could actually see a reduction of new co cases of cognitive impairment simply by monitoring and reducing um, blood pressure. This was a, a trial that took place over seven years. Um, there was an intensive and, an, and a standard um, arm to this intervention. The intensive uh, arm kept the systolic level of blood pressure at 120 systolic while the standard kept the systolic at 140, which at the time was considered to be normal blood pressure. And over the course of the trial, we saw a dramatic reduction of small vessel disease on a MRI. And you can see here that resulted in a 19% reduced risk for developing mild cognitive impairment, a 17% reduced risk for developing dementia. And when we looked at both of those things together, um, it was a 15% combined risk for mild cognitive impairment and dementia. So, you know, this is the first study where we've actually been able to say, um, you know, here is some, some evidence that says if we reduce our blood pressure, if we monitor our blood pressure and we have uh, that 120 systolic blood pressure, we can, we can see the evidence of um, reduction of new cases of cognitive impairment. But our heart health is only going to be one part of it. And so that's what's launched the U.S. Pointer Study. And you heard that um, here in Northern California, I get to play a, a big role um, at that here at the UC Davis site. But this is a five-site study that's taking place over two years to really show whether or not when we look at all of these things, not just the cardiovascular risk factors, but diet, 
exercise combined, the social and cognitive activities, as well as monitoring those things like blood pressure, can we have the maximum benefit on improving brain health? Um, so this will take place over two years. People will be randomized into either a self-guided or a structured lifestyle group. So the self-guided group is sort of given the information and told to go and do it over the two years, whereas the structured lifestyle group gets a little bit more handholding, weekly meetings, things like that. Um, and this is really being held um, in diverse communities across the country. Over 2,000 participants will participate um, ages 60 to 79 years old um, who are cognitively normal but have suboptimal lifestyle um, habits at that time. So not exercisers, not people who are probably eating right and have a risk of dementia in their family as well as um, all of those cardiovascular risks. So I know uh, I only had a few minutes to really sort of highlight some of the hot things that are going on with Alzheimer's and dementia research. Um, if you're not familiar with our Alzheimer's Association Science Hub app and you're interested in this um, type of stuff, this is a really great resource. I would encourage you to download it from the um, App Store on either Google Play or for Apple. Um, and it really does have the latest and greatest in, in some of this research um, that's happening across the world. So I, I want to thank everybody for, for letting us sort of level set a little bit here and um, really is an exciting time in research. We didn't get to touch on things like biomarkers and all of the other things that are really changing the way we're looking at Alzheimer's and dementia research, not just in clinical trials, but that have the potential to um, impact um, clinical care in a, in a healthcare setting as well. Um, and so I really think of uh, the hope that's around um, Alzheimer's and dementia research like we've never seen before. So thank you very much. And with that, I will stop sharing my screen. Thank you so much for that presentation, Claire Day. I'd like to open it up to the audience if anybody has questions that came out of that presentation. Well, thank you. Um, for now, I love that you mentioned a little bit more about the research and how there is really a holistic approach to this, not just the medication, but also including physical activity, a healthy diet and incorporating all the different factors involved. So thank you for that. We will have time for a more in-depth discussion afterwards as well. Um, so I'll go ahead and introduce our second guest speaker, Brian Isaac is a professor at the University of Minnesota College of Pharmacy and a pharmacist with over 25 years of experience working as a nursing home consultant and in community and institutional practice. Dr. Isaacs has distinguished himself as a board certified pharmacotherapy specialist to improve medication effectiveness and safety for patients of all ages. Brian received his undergraduate degree in pharmacy from the University of Wisconsin and his PhD in social and administrative pharmacy from the University of Minnesota. He's received awards for governmental service, service to the profession of the community, and two pinnacle awards from the APHA Foundation and is a fellow of the American Pharmacist Association. 
Today, his presentation um, is going to explain some more of the clinical explanation of the case study of this specific new Alzheimer's drug. So thank you very much for being here. I'll go ahead and share your PowerPoint. Let's see. All right. Yes, and uh, thank you, Marissa, for the introduction. And uh, I want to uh, thank Claire as well. It was amazing as I listened to her presentation. Remember, Claire came on as a pinch hitter, right, to fill in for Lisa. So we haven't seen either one of our slides, and it's amazing. When I get done here, it'll look like we had actually coordinated our work. So, Claire, thank you very much for your work. Um, one other thing that's uh, relevant to this discussion is that, as, as Marissa mentioned, I am a geriatric practitioner, see patients. I'm also a faculty advisor for our Minnesota Student Association Geriatrics Action Group. Uh, I serve as pharmacy's representative on the Interprofessional Geriatric Coordinating Council of our, uh, it's a Geriatric Workforce Enhancement Project grant. We have a five-year grant from the uh, Health Research and Services Administration. And I am also just became a Dementia Friends Champion. And I'll tell, uh, well, I'll put a plug in for that because I see Dr. Teresa McCarthy and some of my other colleagues from the, from the from the counselor also on here. So let's, uh, let's get rolling. So let's go to the next slide of the agenda. <clears throat> we'll talk about an overview of available dementia medications. Uh, this, the aducanumab mechanism of action uh, and the side effects risk benefit profile. We'll talk about this FDA fast track process used for the scientific review of this medication. Uh, we'll talk about some of the controversies such as approval without ad advisory committee support including the fact that three advisory committees resigned, uh, committee members resigned after, uh, after this, questionable insurance coverage at $56,000 and then future directions. Now I have to say, now I've been a student of regulation and health policy and I've actually worked at that Medicare, did a extended sabbatical working at Medicare as a health policy fellow and never have I seen anything like this in my life before. This kind of the tug between FDA and CMS. So this is something we have not, I've not seen in my lifetime. So we'll talk about that next. Let's move on then, Marissa. So the Claire began to talk about this uh, overview of our treatment challenges. It, it's been a long uphill battle. There's hundreds of causes and numerous forms of dementia that are contributing to progressive deterioration. It isn't just one cause. Uh, Alzheimer's disease is, is about 70% of the cases with 6.2 million uh, people age 65 and older with the United States, uh, in the United States. Uh, drugs have only helped manage symptoms and on top of that, they have to cross the blood-brain barrier, which is uh, very stout and hard to get across. Uh, Claire put up the, the biochemical pictures. Thank you, Claire, for that on the, uh, the buildup of amyloid beta plaques, how protein tangles, and the atrophy of the brain itself. And there are these multiple complex physiochemical changes in the brain of patients with dementia that we're just beginning to understand. And on top of that, there have been really no new therapies for dementia in nearly 20 years. And this is, this is really frustrating for our, of the patients we serve as well as, as well as family and caregivers. Next slide, please. So let's talk about, uh, briefly touch on the medications that are currently available. Uh, we started with the cholinesterase inhibitors, acetylcholine as a transmitter in, in the brain. Uh, if we, the thought is if we can have more cholinesterase of, available at the synapses, it may help with cognition. We had uh, denepazil, rabastigmine, galantamine were the first ones. Uh, and then on top of that, more, a little more recently, was memantine, which is, it blocks the harmful effects of glutamate in the brain. Uh, these are approved for mild to moderate dementia. And in the patients I serve, we have this other, what I'll call drug disease interactions going on. The fact that many of uh, uh, 
uh, elderly patients need uh, medicines for urinary incontinence, and they have anticholinergic effects. Some depression medications, the tricyclic antidepressants, some antihistamines. So here we're giving drugs, you know, to keep more acetylcholine around, and then we've got anticholinergics on top of that. It's like this is push and pull all the time. And we also know that anticholinergic medicines can uh, worsen cognition in and of themselves. Uh, and the other piece here that's, that's really that I see from my practice is once we get to individuals with severe dementia, there are limited treatment options. And it's very, very challenging, actually a little bit depressing, quite frankly, that we see individuals would become combative and we sometimes have to use antipsychotic medications and other medications. So this is where we really need to keep, get moving on the research uh, moving forward. Next slide, please. So this has been this elusive search for new therapies. There are no less than nine different clinical hypotheses of what's going on within uh, uh, the dementia uh, disease process. The cholinergic one, the amyloid, uh, pro the tau protein, metal ion, there's nine of these different clinical hypotheses that we're looking to address. Claire did an excellent job talking about the risk factors that we can manage on top of all this. Billion dollars across all our, our research uh, annually in, in, in the United States. As I mentioned, uh, families are devastated. And so right now in this particular medication, this amyloid hypothesis has risen to the top as being uh, prominent. But the question does remain, okay, if we decrease amyloid plaques, does it reverse disease progression? Does it improve cognition? That's, a, that's an open question. Next slide, please. All right, so aducanumab, all right, it's an amyloid beta-directed monoclonal antibody. Without getting too technical in a three-credit pharma, uh, pharmacology course, just, uh, just to bring this up, monoclonal antibodies are molecules that are derived from recombinant DNA technology as compared to the uh, first generation of medicines that may have been uh, extracted from plant or uh, plant origin or may have been synthesized in the, in the uh, laboratory. Uh, it's an intravenous infusion uh, administered over one hour every four weeks. Uh, they fall, in, the, in the trials that were done, they found that the high dose had some amyl reduction in amyloid plaques. However, there was little, if any, improvement in clinical dementia ratings. In fact, one study was terminated following, uh, early following an, uh, an interim analysis for futility. The other thing is the side effects. We have this brain swelling and bleeding. Usually it's reversible, but this other piece that, that, that hangs in the balance in terms of the risk-benefit profile. We're not sure if it helps cognition, and we have the side effects of 41% of patients have brain swelling and bleeding. Uh, it does require uh, positive uh, emission tomography scans or you can do a lumbar puncture. I would not re recommend doing a lumbar puncture at home. So it requires a PET scan to, to see if you really have amyloid plaques, and then as it progresses, uh, an MRI to, uh, further down the road to further um, to, to, to measure um, effect. Next slide, please. So here we get into the contra controversies. Um, there is a process at the FDA to fast track new medicines, uh, for unmet medical conditions. And this is one medication that has and this, this, this whole family of medications uh, of these monoclonal antibodies for amyloid plaque buildup are being fast-tracked through. Um, it must show some advantage over existing drugs. That's an open question here. It, it usually in, includes an ongoing clinical trial research. And what that means is most drugs, once they become, uh, get, are approved, then have why not. This is actually doing continuing studies on the fly while the drug is approved, which is a little dicey proposition in and of itself. Um, as I mentioned, the committee recommended against approval. They recommended that if this drug not be approved, 
and the FDA still approved it. And as I mentioned, three prominent uh, advisory committee members resigned over that decision. I was approved for mild impairment with amyloid plaques confirmed by PET scans. Uh, one other piece to this, the, the controversy is on top of all of this, if that wasn't enough, there, uh, the Office of Inspector General is investigating some pro uh, possible improper factor biogen and the FDA prior to approval. Uh, that's a big no-no, that, that you can't, can't happen. So they're investigating that as well. Next slide, please. Okay, now how are we gonna pay for this? Right? Biogen set a price of $56,000 a year, ouch. And what usually happens here, this interplay between FDA and, and, and Medicare or the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services is that FDA approves the drug and Medicare usually goes along with it. It's the, we, in the, it's what the market will bear. Well, uh, the FDA has put its, its brother, uh, uh, Medicare, in a tough bind here, a really, really tough bind. As I said, Medicare usually provides coverage for most FDA-approved drugs, but they are not required to do so. They almost always do, but are not required to do so. Uh, the United States is one of the few countries that doesn't, we do not permit price negotiation for drugs. It's, uh, it's being debated right now, as it is many years, uh, many times in Congress, negotiation for drugs. So Medicare is grappling with payment conditions. One option may be coverage with evidence development. Let's say, okay, we'll cover this on a limited basis. Possibly we'll say for uh, uh, individuals with, with mild to mild, uh, new onset uh, Alzheimer's disease and they have PET scans that demonstrate uh, um, that there is uh, amyloid plaques. The other twist though is that the uh, Medicare has not previously paid for PET scans for non-oncology indications. So here's another one they have to set another uh, exception in terms of coverage for the PET scans that will go along with this. Uh, uh, another uh, 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 tough pill to swallow, sorry for the pun, is that Medicaid, our state Medicaid programs, unlike Medicare, they are required to pay for most FDA-approved drugs, even when they don't work. It's like, what kind of laws do we have here? Medicaid has to pay for FDA-approved drugs, even if they don't work. And this is going to be a tremendous strain uh, on our Medicaid, uh, state Medicaid budgets. On top of that, much of the medical community, from insurers to, to healthcare providers, have said, we're not even going to pay for this. We're, uh, so Blue Cross Blue Shield of Maine, some other places. The Cleveland Clinic says, we will not administer this at all. We're not going to use this medication. It's uh, based on... We haven't seen the, uh, the effectiveness and the safety is a concern. So this is part of the controversy. Next slide, please. So let's talk future directions. So there are additional amyloid drugs that are pending. All right, they're coming. So uh, denonamab is actually from Lilly. It's an oral drug. It doesn't have a, uh, a brand name yet. So that is in fast track status. Uh, also Roche uh, has one. Uh, it's, it's interesting. As I, I put these slides together, I sent them in on Tuesday. It's like three or four new things come up by in, in the last three days, okay? So that the Roche drug, Gantanarumab, uh, is a subcutaneous that's uh, in fast track that will be in reviewed. Uh, some other new, you know, new directions as we're looking at the tau aggregation inhibitors. About the tau protein and the amyloid plaques, how they're kind of the, the tangles want to have you. Maybe there's, there's a tau vaccine uh, in, in study. Uh, drugs to reduce brain cell inflammation. Uh, one, one, one I want to mention is just another brand, brand new development is we're looking to repurpose existing drugs. In other words, there's existing drugs that are sitting on our pharmacy shelves are being repurposed. One that they're working on right now is a diuretic. Uh, the brand name is Bumex or Bumetanide that they have found that individuals have taken that have decreased brain inflammation. 
and has a decreased the risk. So that's uh, being pursued as well. Uh, many cancer drugs are, are being investigated that rescue synaptic, synaptic uh, depletion and improve brain signal transduction. We talked about the heart disease risk factor reduction and then this uh, uh, apolipoprotein E genotype, earlier identification of those who may be at risk. And uh, that was the three credit course. Uh, slide, please. Uh, just the way I want to talk about, well, uh, next slide is on one more slide here. Yeah. Um, how, how to help right now. Recognizes there's much more to the person than the dementia. As I said, uh, with the, on the group of uh, health science students have become Dementia Friends champions, are preparing to provide Dementia Friends informational sessions, to, uh, sessions throughout the community that we can do more right now to help individuals and families. It's, a, it's recognizing it's a disease of the brain, uh, just like uh, a disease of the brain, like the cardiovascular disease, but the disease of the brain. It's not a normal part of aging, and it's not just a memory problem. And it is possible to have a good quality of life. We talk about living with dementia. You can, by, by following some of the principles of the Dementia Friends uh, work that's been done, that we can help individuals live calm and be patient when we're caring for them. And I put this plug in for the Dementia Friends Minnesota program to help make communities dementia friendly. And so with that, I'll, uh, I'll stop. We'll go to the next slide and we'll open it up for questions. Hi, right, thank you so much again, uh, Brian and Claire, both for your presentations. It was super, super informative. Um, I just have a quick question as to kind of, you know, just trying to understand how uh, Agile Home got approved. Um, because the advisory board, you know, didn't give their recommendation to approve Agile Helm and um, because, you know, they were little to no clinical uh, benefits of administering this drug. Um, I'm wondering, you know, what was the push out of the door to approve Agihelm? Was there some sort of financial incentive? Uh, was there some sort of like... Yeah, yeah. That, that's a great, that's one I have pondered uh, extensively here. And, you know, you know, if this was another Me Too drug for a condition, the way it would have, that in most cases, it would not have been approved. In this particular case, we have been spending $3 billion a year on research, and we have not really have, haven't had much to show for it in terms of new drugs. And all I can think of is now this is now I'm speculating only because I've been inside FDA, like I said, did an internship there. I've been in, you know, a, a, a government worker. It's that, that I can just see these meetings. If I fly on the, if I were a fly on the wall, I would imagine this is what you're going to hear. Oh, darn it. We've been, we got to do something here. We got, we, we're, you know, we haven't done anything for the public with all this research. We have to show some effects. And the other thing is that maybe that as a new generation of these medicines come down the road, uh, for instance, that Lilly drug I mentioned, that uh, in the early clinical trials, it has shown that there has been some modest, limited uh, 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 improvement in cognition. So maybe just this first, the first one that came on the market was, you know, like a lot of the first ones, it's, uh, was the, it's the sluggish one, the first generation. Maybe the next generation of these next ones coming down the pike right now may show, show more benefit. So it's one of these, we, have, we don't have much to hang on to, this may be it, so let's, uh, let's let you know, the FDA might be saying, let's at least give it a shot because we're, we've done nothing for the last 20 years. Gotcha, thank you. Sure. Going along with that, um, the I have a question. As the chief executive officer at ASI mentioned um, that he believes this new treatment has the potential to bring hope to the future of global health society and most importantly, the patients and their families, representing a great 
step towards advancement of holistic ecosystem solution for this devastating disease. Um, so with that strong push with this one in particular, do you foresee this being the only and um, the only drug for Alzheimer's or is there still progress being made towards other potential prescriptions? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take a first step on the drugs part and then Claire, I'll let you jump in on some of the, the other the the kind of the, the global issues here is that now there are a number, like I mentioned, there's nine different, at least nine different clinical hypotheses. And uh, it, what I believe will happen, okay, this is personally for me in the field, I just see that, that there, there is research going with these other, um, other clinical hypotheses addressing them by combining some of these in a way that makes sense in the future as these come to development, where it's going to have to be a multifaceted approach for, for in terms of medication use, uh, as well as with, uh, with the lifestyle factors. So I think that's, that's there are, yes, there are other uh, medications and other categories that are in the pipeline now. Claire? Yeah, I would just, I would echo that. I think whenever we look at those first drinks, and you mentioned that on the, on your last question, I mean, nobody's probably ever heard of Cognex, but that was the first uh, acetylcholinesterase inhibitor, right? That uh, was um, quickly replaced by better better medications in its class. Um, and that's oftentimes what we see in history. Um, but I think that it will never be a one size fits all answer uh, for dementia. I think there's, there's, it's, it's going to be that sort of cocktail of either different treatments as well as the, the um, lifestyle modifications. And I think the more and more we learn about how we can decrease our risks um, and really change that approach to aging um, as sort of, you know, you, you do all these things when you age to not have a heart attack and to not have, not get diabetes, you know, physicians offices are teaching that health systems are teaching that to older adults. I, I, I envision a world where we do the same thing about good brain health. What does it mean to um, have good brain health as we age? I had a, a question, um, Claire and Dr. Isaac, about sort of the impact to families and actually people who are living with dementia and just having a new drug. Can either of you sort of speak to that, whether it's the morale or I guess maybe the word is hope that people are working on this? And, you know, we often turn to, turn to pharmacology for a lot of our answers, and it does give that hope sometimes for people. So I'm wondering if either of you could speak to that a little bit. I'll take a first step, Claire. Um, you know, Rajan, it's, it's interesting you, you pose that question. It, you know, I look at it uh, uh, similar to what has happened with our COVID-19 vaccine. Remember, we talked about the hope of having that vaccine, and then all of a sudden, all these mixed messages come up. So here we have, we give the, these patient, uh, patients and families new hope there's a new drug, and then they start reading about it and find out, what the heck, this drug doesn't work and it has side effects? Why did they approve it? It's like, okay, there goes all my hope that any, you know, you hope you had. So it's just how we balance this. And the question that was asked earlier, this, as the other medicines in this class come down the pike, they are, from early, uh, early results of clinical trials, appear to have some um, additional benefit that can be given orally. There is some improvements in cognition. You got to give it early, what have you. And hopefully they have these new ones don't also cost $56,000. That's not going to fly. 
Yeah, and I I, I want to add, um, we you know we've heard from early stage um, participants, many of who participate in clinical trials, not necessarily just for Adjihelm, but for for other um, treatments down the pike, and and they all do it because they are hopeful that it may just give them a little bit more time, um, and what they could do with that time where they're able to still make their own um, decisions and plan their own course. Um, we've heard that that is uh, very valuable. Um, and I do want to just add about the, the cost, you know, the Alzheimer's Association um, has really called on Biogen to reduce that cost. I mean, that, that cost is not acceptable. Um, and so I think there, we're, we're really sort of hoping that there could be um, some great advocacy work done and, and work within these institutions to, to ensure that this, this drug has to be available to everybody who qualifies for it. And not everybody's going to have the amyloid, right? And I think that was a really important part of understanding um, Adjihelm is that you have to have that presence of amyloid. But if you do have it, um, you should be able to get the medication if you want it. Um, and cost shouldn't be the reason you don't. Um, I was wondering, uh, given what you presented, like the limited data and then the the cost and um, concerns about the approval process, I can see why like the Cleveland Clinic has decided not to administer it. Have you seen that come out of other centers as well? Or are there some centers that are saying uh, as of now that they're going to go ahead and start administering the drug? Uh, that's one of the most frequently asked questions that I, I've had. Uh, in the past two months, and, you know, my phone's ringing off the hook, quite frankly, on, on that same question. Um, there are, it's, what I see is the centers that were in the clinical trials, about 900 or so, are ones that will continue to, to administer this. However, because CMS has not made a firm decision on payment yet, it's, it has the very, very little, from what the way my reading here is that very uh, little of this drug is being administered uh, uh, because uh, most providers are, I don't want to pick it up. I don't want to pick up the cost. And insurers outside of Medicare, all right, are just are pretty firm that they're going to be they're going to put all kinds of what I call guardrails on the top of this and be very reluctant to pay for this. So the with Biogen's, uh, I guess uh, the best way to describe it is their uh, investor portfolio uh, portfolio leaves a lot to be desired at this point in time. And so the answer to your question is yes, there are numerous other providers that are not not partaking at this time. That's correct. And the, and, it's, and the other thing, Kayla, is it's an intravenous infusion. You've got to bring that person in. You've got to have pre-medications. You've got to sit in a chair. You've got to wait till after. You've got to have specialized people. We're hurting for help in terms of healthcare personnel. And now we're going to uh, do the, this an intravenous infusion every four weeks on top of it. So it, it, it's, I think it is really going to limit uh, the, the rollout of this particular medication at this time. That makes sense. Thank you. And do you see centers where patients are going and paying out of pocket that full price? I have not heard that yet. I'm keeping my eyes uh, and ears open for that. Uh, that is a good question. Thank you. I have a question. Um, I'm curious as to what the patient versus provider response has been. Um, it seems like providers have been pretty reluctant um, to um, give out this drug based on what you're mentioning, but what is kind of the patient perspective? Have you um, noticed that like patients tend to be receptive to this or kind of pushing towards this, or are they kind of more reluctant given kind of the situation with the FDA approval? 
Okay, so the FDA had, uh, had took uh, public comments on this, like most other um, uh, regulations or what have you, and um, they, they, the comments are published. You can look them up. I did. I read all 489 pages of public comment that came from, you know, everywhere uh, from public citizens uh, group all to, to, to providers that were in the clinical trials and uh, providers that say, oh, we got to have something on my patients or I'm a patient. I was in the trial. It helped me. All right. We got it. We have to make this more accessible. So I have it was, it's the full spectrum of responses across uh, across the board, which just further you know, emphasizes the fact that we have to, to keep working harder and harder to find new therapies, make this uh, $3 billion a year pay off soon. So it's, a, it's totally across the board on both ends of the spectrum. Something that really stood out to me about your presentation, Brian, is that you said Medicaid is required to pay for FDA-approved drugs, even if they don't work. Um, what sorts of movements or policy changes have you seen or foresee around this controversy? Now, keep in mind, thank you, uh, Marissa. Um, uh, Medicaid is typically for individuals that are, are slightly above the poverty line, all right? And they're usually, usually younger, I say usually, all right? Uh, and so what part in this particular case here is that um, dementia is a little later in life, not always, okay? You can have early onset dementia, which is really devastating because it hits a little faster as we found out. Uh, and so it, it, it's like, there'll be more Medicare eligible patients than Medicaid. Uh, but to, to get back to this, this question you asked is that, how did we get in this bind of, of Medicare, Medicaid having to pay for, for drugs approved by the FDA? Well, I mean, the FDA has been, you know, really has had this gold standard of, the, of being a, a very scientific organization. As I said, this is the first time in my lifetime that I've seen anything like this before. I mean, it's just, it's a, from a student of, of, of regulation. It's a, it's a case study in and of itself that I've never seen before. So this, in a, it's, this may be a prompt for, for action to change uh, those laws and regulations related to the Medi Medicaid program. I have a general question um, since I work a lot with students and this may not be directly on the topic, but uh, hopefully uh, Claire and Brian, maybe you could just offer some comments. What advice, whether it's related to the Alzheimer's drug or the work you're doing, would you give students that are, uh, you know, we have many graduate students, professional students, undergrad students here. And obviously, Brian, this is an intimate part of your life being a faculty member. But um, what advice would you just give the students that are convened here today that are working on aging and, and have a passion for working with older adults? Well, let me turn to Clara first for her perspective. Yeah, so I would say, first of all, thank you, because I feel that it's not um, considered to be the, the uh, popular track to work with older adults, and yet we are an aging nation. Um, 10 million baby boomers will develop Alzheimer's disease if we can't find an effective uh, treatment or cure, and the first of the boomers turned 65 in 2011. Um, so, you know, when you think about one in nine over the age of 65 and one in three over the age of 85 who have Alzheimer's disease or dementia, um, thank you. Um, and I would say keep at it because 
you know, this is a valuable, this is such valuable work um, to, I've, I, I've worked in aging my entire career from, from my very first job, professional job. Um, it was supposed to be a, a starter job. And I quickly realized that this was a field that um, I could really make a career in. And, and I think um, just to keep at it and, and keep um, doing what you're doing to ensure that every life is valued um, over, you know, we, we often see that older adults, um, it feels sometimes like their lives are not valued. There's not the types of protections and, and sometimes even rights when you think of nursing homes that um, we would make sure that everybody else has. So I don't know, that's my perspective. And, you know, I think look at it from uh, the, the fact that you have parents, you have grandparents possibly, all right, they're getting close that they become, we get closer to that 65, that dementia hits so many families. You could be the one to really help us uh, un untangle uh, some of the mysteries that are behind that. Uh, and, uh, you know, to understand the, the, the disease itself, um, we're going to try and we're health science students that there's seven uh, health science students that are, are now offering dementia friends pre uh, informational presentations and to, uh, to better understand what are some of the things we can do right now with uh, to care for individuals and help them live, uh, live uh, healthy lives is to understand that right now is, is just really, really important. Uh, and so um, you know, we have to get rid of the misconceptions. And then as you train, um, this dementia right now, we've got a ways to go. And anything that you can do to contribute to help uh, this, uh, the individuals in our community, it's gonna help the future generations. Going along the lines of what we can do right now, I've learned of other like non-prescription alternative approaches to prevention, such as exercising the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, um, which has the executive function of problem solving, multitasking, things like that. Um, an activity, for example, could be like learning a second language, anything like that, exercising the brain um, as a way to help delay these symptoms is that something that you find as a valid activity or what is your perspective on that either Claire, please go ahead yeah so i think what we've seen we've seen individually uh, a research in in all of this sort of lifestyle domains that we are looking at um, with us pointer uh, and we've seen them have really great impact on uh, reducing risk of developing dementia and I would also add that we've seen research around people who have dementia uh, progressing a little bit, uh, I don't want to say better, but healthier, maybe slower progression if they're cognitively active, even once diagnosed. Those that sit and watch television all day will have a faster rate of progression than people who are engaged in, in different types of activities. So anything we can do to um, keep that those synapses firing, keep our brain active. The, the, the sort of rule of thumb is if it challenges you, if it's something new, if it's something that um, you really have to sort of think and concentrate on, that's good. That, you know, when you get to those levels, if it's, if puzzles are the things you like and you get to that level where it's no longer challenging, it's time to go on to the next level. And so thinking of some of those cognitive activities, and that's why I think what's so great about US Pointer is we're going to pull those pieces together and say, what happens if we do them all? What happens if we take care of our blood pressure and we eat better um, and we exercise and we stay um, uh, socially connected, cognitively challenged? 
um, will it have the maximum protection? Well, you couldn't have said any better, Claire. And I'll just add a more a pra a pragmatic perspective. Remember the, the slide that Claire had? She showed the picture of a, an individual that had dementia, that atrophy. Okay, you, it's like any other muscle or organ. You don't use it, it atrophies, all right? So by then really exercising your mind, all right, it can just help maybe stave it off or then slow the progression if you do have that. So absolutely. Doctor, uh, Dr. Isitz, uh, this is Bill Bard again. <clears throat> um, I really en enjoyed your presentation. I was fearful that you were just going to whitewash the work on that, on that new drug. And uh, you, you presented a very honest, candid assessment, some of the pros and the cons. Um, my brief experience, my, I have tried to train uh, elderly in chess. Uh, I'm an elderly, I'm an elder, older person too. And uh, people who have mild cognitive impairment and above, beyond, uh, I don't think have much, there's much hope in them mastering chess at all, even at a modest level. Uh, but I think that uh, some cognitive interventions could be helpful for people prior to uh, the onset of uh, uh, dementia. My question to you is, um, do you think Medicare will ever consider cognitive interventions that are uh, provide evidence that there's uh, effect? Uh, Bill, yes, yes, I do. I really do believe that. For instance, like the similar to the diabetes prevention program, that these these as we're going more and more to recognize that we've got to we've got to stop these uh, the progression of these diseases earlier on. It'll save us tons of money. So I believe the answer is yes. And thank you very much for the comment. Uh, I don't work for the pharmaceutical industry. I'm a pharmacist. I don't make the drugs. I make the drugs work better. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much, everybody, for all of those engaging questions. And thank you, speakers, for answering them all so wonderfully. This podcast is brought to you by ASIC, the Aging Studies Interdisciplinary Group at the University of Minnesota. We are a collaborative networking group for students studying aging across the university. Stay tuned for the next episodes of Voices of Aging, where you learn more about aging through experts.